Hey chocolate lovers, this month I bring to you the second full-length straight-up interview of the season. This month with Pashmina Lashandani. Pashmina is co-founder and CEO of Bar & Coco, an online craft chocolate retailer based in Denver, Colorado, here in the U.S. As of right now, Bar & Coco is one of the largest craft chocolate retailers in the world. So in light of how much the industry has changed this year, I decided she'd be able to provide some insight into how COVID has affected both makers and the final consumers. Earlier this month, I spoke with Pashmina about topics ranging from global warming to marketing and adjusting in the middle of the pandemic. So let's get into it. So um, can you introduce yourself? Tell me how you came to run one of the largest online craft chocolate shops in the world. Sure. Hi, my name is Pashmina. Uh, I am a co-founder of Bar & Coco. We are a craft chocolate marketplace. We have about 70 plus makers that we feature, all of them bean to bar with a focus on direct trade and sustainable sourcing and making really great chocolate. And what led you to getting into the chocolate business? Is that your background or? No, so it, it kind of happened by accident. Uh, I didn't actually try craft chocolate uh, and, and real chocolate until 2015. And, you know, it it's almost embarrassing, but it's like, we don't really think about where our chocolate comes from. And even though I was a foodie and I was willing to spend more money on ingredients like good olive oil or good salts or good pasta or, or you know, even just like a good can of tomatoes, for some reason, I just wasn't making that same leap when it came to chocolate. And then finally, one day, I was like, you know, what? what is this $8 bar or $9 bar all about? And I decided to buy it. And it was actually a bar of ritual chocolate who they're now based out of uh, Utah. And I tried it and it was an 85% Ecuador bar that they make. And I was really astounded that all this flavor was coming only from the chocolate and more so it wasn't bitter. It didn't have the bitterness that you come to expect when you eat dark chocolate. It's almost like having really good coffee for the first time where you start to experience coffee for what it is. I was, I felt like I was experiencing chocolate for what it was. Um, and so that kind of set me off on my journey to eating good chocolate. And I was trying to find more makers that the, in Denver, like that I could buy and I couldn't find anything locally. And I started to shop online, but I wasn't too thrilled with the experience that I got online either. You know, either it was, um, the shops were shipping to me in tons of styrofoam and waste. And I didn't think that was, uh, very sustainable. I don't think sustainability should break down at the last mile. Or on the other hand, it seemed like the selection of chocolate wasn't very well curated. So here I am spending eight to $10 on a bar of chocolate. And sometimes it was really good. And sometimes it wasn't so good. And I just wish the stores had a little more attention towards the quality and the types of products that they were carrying. So for that eight to 10, or maybe at this point, like eight to $15 chocolate bar that people might see in the store, 
what did you feel needed to be added to the value of that to make it worth that much for you? Because you said that the taste of that first ritual bar was really amazing and astounding, but then it kind of flatlined when you were finding some other makers. So what mm-hmm. what did you know needed to be brought to the table? I mean, some of it is just definitely personal taste and some of it is just knowing quality when you, when you try it, even if it's not something you may enjoy yourself, right? So, um, and I just feel like sometimes maybe some stores maybe just carry things because the margins are good or, you know, it's good enough. There's this like balance I try and strike between like what we carry in terms of quality and it tastes really amazing and it's, it's showcasing makers that are using premium beans because it's directly sourced or um, they're, they're unique sources of chocolate, but also balancing that with like, okay, this maker is like overcharging. Sometimes you'll, you know, I, I find that some chocolate makers are using the exact same sourcing and same beans. Like maybe they come from uncommon cacao or something, but like, why is this one maker charging, you know, $14 when another maker is charging 10 for the exact same single origin bar? It's a fine balance, I think. I want to make sure that people are getting value for money, but then we also have a lot of bars that we feature that are very premium, but it's because no one else is carrying anything like that, right? Like, so uh, Fu Wen is a maker kind of sticks out in that as that example. Like, Taiwan is a really tiny island, and the source of cocoa coming from Taiwan is very unique, and it's probably very expensive to grow, and their bars reflect that in the price. Whereas, you know, like to me, if, if, if a maker is making a bar and they're using, you know, let's say cocoa from Belize, we kind of know what the, what the cost of that cocoa is, as a, you know, as far as like the commodity on the premium market. So if they come around, they're like, oh yeah, I want to charge $20 for this bar. I'm going to be like, why? Right. Especially when other makers are making the same chocolate for much less. Um, so it's, it's, it's important to strike that balance, I think, between price and quality and then uniqueness. And you mentioned that now you have over 70 makers that you're working mm-hmm. with, that you're carrying, but I know you all started as a subscription box at Choco Rush, actually, back in 2015. So who were the first few makers you were working with, and do you still work with any of them today? Yeah, we started as Choco Rush in 2015 as a subscription box because it was an easy way for us to test the concept and see if there was any interest in curated craft chocolate. And as a subscription box, we ship four bars of chocolate from four different makers, and we try and feature four different origins. And it was just kind of like a a side hobby. You know, it was like, okay, let's try this and see if it works. Let's see if it has some legs. And this was Chris and I at the time, we started it out of his house. Um, We were buying chocolate just in time to fulfill how many ever subscribers we had at the time. And in 2015, we had, you know, at the end of we kicked off our first box in September and we had 30 subscribers. Fast forward, you know, a year or two later, we were like, oh, this, this is really growing. Like people are really interested in this. So then that's when the idea of the store was born and we started buying more chocolate and we moved from Chris's house into a tiny little uh, shared office space. And from there, we've actually moved twice, to, and, and now we're in Denver. We're based out of Denver, and we're in a large warehouse where we house a lot of chocolate, and we're starting to grow our, our store, and our subscription is still a great service and a great way for people to discover new chocolate. And we still have some of the subscribers that 
joined us in 2015 and 16. They're still subscribers today. At this point, something made my audio very garbled, but going from 30 or so subscribers to the hundreds they have now made me wonder who was buying all these boxes and for whom. I mean, no one's ever bought me a chocolate subscription box. So I asked Pashmina about how many of her club boxes ended up as gifts. I think about 70% of subscriptions are gift subscriptions. That's huge. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely chocolate is is really, you know, it really is about gifting. A lot of our orders are gifts in general, whether it's a subscription box or a store order or a gift box order. Um, it, and it's a great gift to give. It's it's one that I think creates a lasting impression on people's minds. Like, you know, especially when you, you have like a box of like eight chocolate bars or, or a club box where you do a three month subscription. So it's 12 bars over three months. And, and I think people really enjoy it and they enjoy the experience. So over the last five or so years, what has the evolution of Bean to Bar been like in the U.S. from the perspective of a retailer? Well, uh, I think as Bean to Bar, as it's growing up, we're finding that more chocolate makers are making chocolate at origin. And I find that to be the most exciting because now we're creating a larger impact on the economy and on the people in the countries where cacao has grown. I think when it first started, they weren't made at origin. They, they were, there was a lot of premium beans being exported to France or, or in places in Europe or in the U.S. And a lot of chocolate makers are American or European, and they all make great chocolate. But it's also exciting to now see that some chocolate makers are making chocolate locally in, in the country. So whether it is farm to bar or tree to bar or even just sourcing locally, that to me is really exciting. And I think they're getting better with their packaging and their branding and also improving their, their process for making chocolate. The chocolate making process is also improving for these companies. And they're able to compete on the same level as some of our American and European chocolate makers. So speaking of evolving industries, I think the current hot topic everywhere, everyone would agree, is COVID. So how has Bar & Cocoa had to adjust over the last like eight or nine months to COVID? And, and what's been happening there as a primarily online business at this point? Uh, yeah, great question. So yeah, COVID definitely has had an impact on our business and we've shifted our model. Like we, I still think retail has a place and when things have calmed down and, and COVID is no longer something that we're contending with, we still really want to open a retail space um, and, and probably something in Denver now that we're based here because there's just, you can't replicate being able to try things in person and, and the experience of walking into a chocolate store and having someone talk your ear off about this bar or this maker or this single origin and being able to taste it and sample it. But to answer your question about COVID, so a couple of things have happened because of that. We've completely shifted to all online and we've had to make very big changes in as far as shipping and logistics go. So we used to ship everything primarily USPS and that's become less reliable. And during the summer, we were dealing with a lot of packages melting or getting lost and then arriving melted because it would take 
USPS, instead of the average two to three days, it was taking five to seven days. Um, so we've shifted our logistics and, you know, it's, it's a larger cost to use UPS or FedEx, but it was very important that we get the orders that people are ordering, not only on time, but also without melts during the summer. So that was a big shift. And then from a inbound perspective too, shipping has been very challenging because every, every network, whether it's ocean freight or air freight has been, is just seeing peak volumes and they're all overwhelmed. And so the cost to import the chocolate has gone up significantly as well. I'm sure you get a lot of DMs of uh, people asking you about your chocolate, but you work with 70 plus chocolate makers at this point, but running a chocolate retail business, what is the difference between how people think or how people perceive you divide your time and how you're actually dividing your time? Like what are the main few tasks that keep Bar & Coco uh. online? <laughs> Well, I, it, that's a, it's actually, a, there's a lot going on behind the scenes, that's for sure. So aside from just shipping and packing and picking orders and answering customer service phone calls and emails and chats and inquiries through Instagram and Facebook and all of that, one of the most time-consuming aspects of this business is just my customers are the 70 chocolate makers and making sure that we are maintaining inventory levels so that we, we don't, you know, that, that all our customers have a good shopping experience and that the bars that they want to buy are in stock and that we don't have stockouts. So maintaining a, a good open communication channel with these 70 plus makers and organizing um, the, the shipping and the orders, that's, that's a big, um, that's, that takes a lot of effort because now we're dealing with international shipping and customs and FDA clearance. So that's, that's in, its, in and of itself, it's a very time-consuming aspect of our business. And then just warehouse stuff. Like, you know, we're, it's a big operation to manage a warehouse like this and in receiving and, and organizing and keeping things of quality and, you know, keeping all of that up to date. And then there's all the aspects of marketing. So we, you know, being an online store, our online website is our biggest asset. And we've just gone through a, a rebrand and, a, and a, a new website change because we want to make sure we're showcasing these brands and these chocolates in the best way possible and create the best shopping experience for not only our customers, but also um, really ex give, give these chocolate makers and the cow sources they use more exposure. And so I kind of see that as our responsibility as a retailer as well, especially since we're online, we need to be able to, to communicate that as effectively as we can. And that, that takes a lot of effort too, just working on something like this website and, and rebranding it and redoing it was a, a gargantuan effort. And it took a lot of people um, to put this together and, and to launch it in the way that we did. So going back to what you were just saying about uh, putting more focus upon the the origins and, and the cacao itself, why is it so important to you to connect consumers to each step of the chocolate making process? Because what you were saying was your customers are the makers and the end mm -hmm. customers. So, so why go back so far in the process? Because I think it educates our customers about chocolate in a new way, in the way that you start to think about wine or coffee. I think people just need that extra step to start thinking about chocolate in that way. So a lot of times we'll have 
our repeat buyers, repeat customers will call or email like, oh, I really enjoyed this bar. Okay, what bar was it? Oh, it was, you know, the Ritual Belize or Ritual Ecuador as an example. Okay, what did you enjoy about it? Was the was it the flavor? Was it the texture? And if it's if it's about texture, then then that kind of gives you an idea of like what what style of chocolate like they like. Like I feel like French chocolate makers tend to use more butter, and it has a it has a, a different mouthfeel than than say something that Dick Taylor or Ritual might make. Whereas if they're like, no, I really like the flavor, and it's something about maybe the Ecuadorian bean or the Belizean cacao that they're really appreciating, then it's almost like saying like. I really like Malbecs as a wine, or I really like a Petite Syrah. So you can find another winemaker that uses the same grape or a similar grape and find other wines you might enjoy. And so the same thing is true for understanding the cacao source and where the beans come from, or even the cacao strain. Like once you have, once you fall in love with a chocolate, you might be able to find something else that you love just as much if you understand more about the origin and the strain. So on that note, actually, I've noticed recently that there is a centralized fermentary and a growing region in the center of the Dominican mm -hmm. Republic. I think it's called Los Bejucos. Um, that's been awarded a protected designation of origin for their cacao, just like the hazelnuts from uh, Piemonte and some wine regions. What do you think about this? Like, do you see any other origins that come to mind when you think of a designated protection area? Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know that I have an opinion on it. Really, I'd, I'd have to like read more into it and really get educated on that and see like what the pros and cons are. I mean, is it creating better? You know, is it doing more for the farmers? Is it doing more to for the quality of the cacao? Is it, or is it? You know, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how to answer that. It's a very thoughtful approach. I feel like that reveals a lot about you, though, just how you answered that. Oh, I like that. What are your thoughts on ingredient certifications and, and award systems and what their role might be moving forward? I, I think it's good. I think, you know, like things like the Academy of Chocolate and International Chocolate Awards, they're giving um, makers a lot of exposure and they're helping with recognition. And, and I think it's important that every industry have that kind of recognition, right? Whether it's, it's chocolate or wine or, or any other food, like there's a good food awards too, that, that uh, gives awards on a lot of different categories. And as long as these award organizations don't favor certain makers and, and it doesn't seem like they are, I think it changes a lot over time, which is also really exciting because it, it you know, there's always these new makers that pop up and win awards that people are like, who, who's this maker, you know? And like, it's like, who, where do they come from? It's, I think it's really exciting. And it, and it just shows how much the industry is growing and with not like the usual suspects winning all the time, it's, um, it's anyone's game and it's anyone's award like to, to win the following year. It's not like, oh, it's like at this point, it's so mature that it's gonna be really hard to compete, right? Where, whereas I think in wine, it is, it is more and more difficult to become the next best, greatest winemaker. Um, in chocolate, it's, that's not true. I think it's still very young and, and there's a lot of innovation that can still happen. Have you ever used any of these award systems to find new makers or new bars to solicit samples of? Yeah, absolutely. I, and especially, you know, when, um, when we were just getting started and I was saying that I wanted a more curated selection, 
I spent, I can't tell you how many hundreds of hours, but I went through every website I could find that reviewed chocolate bars. And I went through all the archives of every award uh, list. And I put together this big spreadsheet of, of all this data coming from all these different sources to kind of give me a gestalt of like what brands or what bars people were agreeing on were really good. Right. So, you know, there, there are a few prolific bloggers out there that write a lot of reviews about chocolate. Um, and so I had this like big spreadsheet with every rating from every blogger for every bar I could find. And that's kind of how I educated myself on how people were not only writing about chocolate and rating it, but also what people thought were good and why they thought it was good. And that's kind of what took me on my journey. And I started buying all this chocolate to kind of taste it and see for myself um, and kind of compare and contrast. I mean, at this point, I'm sure you get this question a lot, but I mean, what is the process like for a bead bar maker to send you samples? Like what kinds of products are you interested in expanding into in the bean bar sector? So I think the most exciting and still very, uh, very small portion of bean bar chocolate is anything that's actually not a bar. So bars, you know, we have a lot of bars and they're all great and, and we're going to continue growing that and featuring new makers. But I think, you know, there's, there's something about chocolate that's really interesting from a, from a consumer psychology standpoint, which is that like, when people are like, hmm, okay, what do I feel like eating? Oh, I, I really want some chocolate. The next question they ask themselves is not, is not like, oh, what maker do I want or necessarily, but it's more like, what format do I want to consume this chocolate in? And right now, like 80% of what we carry is in a bar format. Whereas we really should, what I really want to see from makers too, is like additional ways to consume this amazing high quality chocolate. So, you know, like baking and bulk chips is, a, is an exciting segment, especially with COVID going on. A lot of people want to bake uh, with good chocolate, especially since they're indoors and at home and, and they're looking for activities to do with their, their kids or their family. So that's been a growing segment and, and I'm really excited that companies like French Broad and Raka have these chips now that they, they sell in bulk. And then there is like the whole confection and treats and, and that as a segment, I think could use additional growth and hopefully some of the makers as they mature will start creating products that meet that market yeah. and that demand. I mean, that's my personal favorite for sure is the, the uh, higher what was it longer shelf life like two or three month kind of confections things that i don't have to worry about trying to refrigerate but i can still enjoy like a bonbon mm -hmm. yes yeah and, and we're starting to carry more of those too as we as we grow and we you know we're, we know that we can turn them over without them sitting on the shelf and expiring we recently picked up some truffle products from amade we're We've got caramel bonbons coming from Chocolate Tree and from a Chocolate Larder. We do have a decent selection of coated nuts and fruit, but we're picking up more from Venchi and then a couple new brands that we'll probably be launching at the end of the month. So yeah, it's it's a it's an exciting segment, and I, I think you know as people get into chocolate, they they and they start to eat good chocolate, they're gonna want that same quality of chocolate in the other formats of chocolate that they consume. 
I feel like the popularity of the confection type flavored bars, especially the white chocolate bars, is a really good indicator of consumers' interest in that type of product. Like not just two or two ingredients, single origin dark chocolates anymore, but just high quality versions of all sorts of different formats of confections. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So on the on the customer side of it, what's the best or, or like most unique innovation or idea that you've ever gotten from a customer? From a customer? Yeah. Hmm. I'm sure you get lots of unsolicited advice and um, ideas, maybe some useful, probably most repetitive. No, I mean, I don't know that we've gotten any ideas from customers per se. I mean, I have a lot of ideas for our chocolate makers. <laughs> you know, I would, I think inclusions, you know, people are doing phenomenal things with inclusions now. It's, a lot of chocolate makers are doing great things with that. And it's almost like the bar becomes like a very large, large truffle or bonbon in, in and of itself. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, it's, it's really unique and exciting and there's like, some really cool inclusion bars that we have on our website that are all, all really great. But, you know, I, I would love to see like more collaboration between different companies, like different food companies. And that, that I haven't seen much of. So, you know, take like a, I don't know, a, a distillery and make a series of infused booze bars with one distillery, maybe, maybe using their, their, rum and whiskey and whatnot but something like that along those lines of, of collaborating with other food categories or you know people who make different foods so even something like i don't know like i mean in some way like mission and arciella what she does with with like brazilian fruit and local fruit and her bars that stuff is really interesting to me and and i you know i think other makers could could probably do something similar where they collaborate with some category or segment of food in some meaningful way. Yeah, I mean, speaking of international shipments, I mean, I know you ship abroad. I'd like to, before we finish up the interview, circle back to the packaging aspect of having to ship chocolate. Because, I, I mean, I've ordered a few times from your site, and I really like how carefully everything is packaged. But I'm also wondering what kind of like eco-friendly steps have you taken to to be looking forward as a business and facing global warming head-on? I know in Denver there's been a lot of wildfires and that that's definitely impacted everything. Yes, it has. Yeah, I you know we moved from Charleston to Denver in some parts to get away from weather, both hurricanes and humidity yeah. and also heat. And on average, um, Denver has 31 days that are above 90, 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And this summer, we had 76 days above 90. So uh, shipping, it made shipping very challenging. We, you know, there were a lot of stressful days where sometimes the, our courier would show up early and it would be like 100, you know, 98 degrees. And I'm like, I'm just not giving you anything right now. Like Either we hadn't iced it because we ice at the very last second before he arrives, um, or or I was just like, no, it's just too hot, and I would wait until six six p.m. or seven p.m. and and like race to the FedEx, the last FedEx location, and take the packages myself because I didn't want them to melt. 
And we're still using, and this is with two day shipping and two, two day express air shipping. And we were still concerned about melt just because it was so hot everywhere in the US, not just here, but even places like Arizona and Texas were, you know, experiencing heat waves above 105, 110 degrees. Um, and in, in doing that, like one of the things that we refuse to do is we never, we, we don't want to use styrofoam to ship any of our products. So we never use any styrofoam. I would rather, we have the occasional melt and we reship when it's when it makes sense to ship or we hold the order because we know it's going to melt and, and most customers are very understanding about that. So we don't use any styrofoam right now. And as we scale, we'll be able to invest in custom boxes. So one of the boxes that we're looking at using for next summer is actually this completely curbside recyclable um, plastic um, like foam box that kind of mimics styrofoam, but isn't as bad for the environment. So we're looking at that for the, the hot, super hot places like Arizona and Texas so that we don't have this problem of melt. And then as we scale even further, there are machines that can make on-demand insulative uh, liners and packaging that are kind of out of reach for us right now, just because we're just not big enough. But that's something we, you know, we definitely want to invest in as we grow because sustainability is definitely something we're we're very keen on and we're it's very important to us, and it's part of our core values as a company. I love that. I mean, what are you most proud of in your business? You don't have to pick just one, maybe a few things, especially as you're growing and as you have grown so much. One of the things I'm most proud of, well. Right now, I would say it's our setup in Denver. Um, you know, we we moved to Denver in on in March, and we moved in on March seventeenth, and then everything shut down. And despite that, like despite that being a challenge, like we managed to create something really cool here, and that where we want to come to work and we want to show up, and um, we want to keep improving things as far as like our how we fulfill and how we store and how we pack. And the customer experience, like we're just, you know, we're really kind of made a lot of strides in that area. And I'm really proud of that internally. And then, and then also more recently, I'm really proud of our rebranding effort. I think I, you know, I mentioned before, like I was super tired and I didn't know how to describe what this felt like, but it's like now my outsides feel like my insides. So now I feel like Boring Pueblo has a brand that really is you know, reflective of who we are as a, as a company. And also we didn't want a brand that didn't look as good as some of the products that we sell. Like some of the, some of the brands that we sell and the makers, they, they put so much attention into their packaging and their branding. And now I feel like our branding and our packaging is also on par with that. So when you buy a gift from us and it comes in a gift box, it's going to be a more elevated experience. And that's exciting. Okay, so last question is on a bit of a lighter note, but I mean, mm -hmm. here in the U.S., it's officially the cold season. So do you have any tips for making good hot chocolate, vegan or otherwise? I am all about thicker is better. Like I love drinking chocolate that's like super thick. So I tend to like, even if the, I think a lot of times the instructions might say like, oh, use one cup of milk. I might use three fourths of a cup of milk because I want it to be more rich and luxurious and kind of sip on that. And then always use a whisk. I feel like people don't realize that this isn't like the stuff that you buy in the store that just kind of disintegrates and dissolves easily. Good drinking chocolate to really 
kind of mix it in with whatever milk you use, whether it's dairy or, or almond or whatever alternative milk, you need to use a whisk to really whisk it in and, and mix it well. Yes, underrated alternative, which we use at my house, is the uh, milk frother, the like foamer thing. Ah, yeah. Absolute lifesaver. As long as you get the chocolate melted first and you just let it sit for a second, then you mm-hmm. actually put it in. Oh, my God. The best. Full emulsion. Yeah, it sounds great. So those are all of my questions, but is there anything else you'd like to share that you feel like you haven't been able to yet? I think my my one thing is how I just want when people shop with us and they think about the chocolate that we are showcasing, it's about capturing like the nostalgia of what it's like to eat chocolate as a kid and the joy it brings you, but without all the junk and all the unethical stuff that comes from that chocolate. And I realize it comes at a much higher price point, but it's worth it. Yeah, it's like chocolate without all the baggage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this extended interview from Chocolate on the Road. If you liked it, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. In fact, please share it in any way you see fit. Your support makes all of the effort put into each episode worth it. And especially huge thank you to Pashmina for being in this episode. To learn more about Bar & Coco, check out the show notes for this episode at the link in the description or on my website at dangkakao.com. That's D-A-M-E-C-A-C-A-O dot C-O-M. Have a wonderful day, and I hope you'll join me next time we go on the road. Mm-hmm.